You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. So this morning we continue our sermon series. We've been in this for, um, I believe it's been, well, it's been three weeks because this is the third church. Um, so we will be looking at all seven churches in the book of Revelation. They're powerful churches. They're, um, it's a powerful message. We want to remind you of a few things before we dive into today's church. First of all, we want to remind you that when it says the angel came and gave a message, that's not the angel with wings, and uh, um, that ought to be fun to watch on live stream this, um, but uh, uh, all of those things, it's a messenger. So if you, if, you, if you go to Google and you look up the seven churches and you put a map, you ask for a map of it, you can see that it's actually a circle. So this messenger is going from church to church, delivering a letter from Christ himself. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I have more stake in the game, I guess. Um, I don't know that I do. But uh, this would be a little unnerving for me. I mean, I can't imagine a knock at the door where Jesus himself has delivered a letter and said, here you go. And I have to go back in my office and open the letter and read the good stuff and the not-so-good stuff from Christ himself. It's been an eye-opener to see the things that Christ sees in his churches and, and how to deal with them. Now, one of the things that I warned the congregation about, and I'll warn you again today, is, is that let's not try to pick which one is us, all right? A lot of churches find a lot of time to... Try to figure out, are we Church of Smyrna, or are we Church of Ephesus, or are we Church of Pergamum? Pergamum? Um, who are we? Let's not play that game. Because here's what I think. I think in all seven churches, you can pick out little things and say, yeah, that's a problem we have. Yeah, that's a good trait that we have. And so when we start to narrow ourselves down, we, we make it a little less about what can we grow from, and we make it more about, well, I want to feel good about myself. We all want to be the Church of Smyrna last week because you know why most people want to be the Church of Smyrna? Because he had no condemnation for them. He had no, hey man, you're messing up here. And so every church wants to stand up and say, we're the Church of Smyrna. I'm not so sure if Christ came back today and wrote a letter. What would he say? You ever thought about that? I want you to this week. I do. I want you to sit back if you get the chance. I want you to just be quiet, and I want you to say, Lord, what would you say to my church, church I attend? Right now, what are the goods? What are the not-so-goods? What are the growth points? And just listen. Because here's what we tend to do. We tend to walk ourselves through it in our minds. And then we never listen to what he has to say. And so be quiet and listen to his spirit speak to you. The church at Ephesus was our first week, and that church was considered doctrinally sound, but he had, they had lost their first love. 
And we understood very quickly that, that what that meant was is that they lost their first love of Christ, but they also lost their first love of one another. Because you cannot love one another if you do not love Christ. Because when we don't have the love of Christ in our heart and we lose a little flame of that love, what ends up happening is we want revenge more than we want our brother to succeed. Period. Because that's the world we live in. If I can't like you, I'll use you as a stepping stone. I'll put you down so that you never succeed. And Christ says we should be living a different life in the church. Shouldn't be about that. And so the church of Ephesus started us off with a bit of a rocky start. Then the church of Smyrna was suffering church. Um, that, that, that church was persecuted because they stood up for truth in the midst of a world that wanted to make it about non-truth. And so there were literally people that were put to death and things that happened in the church of Smyrna for their beliefs. But today we look at the church of Pergamum a compromising church. What led to the succumbing to the pressures from the outside? That's the question I want to ask this morning. What was behind their lowering of their defenses to allow the world to enter into their church? We may never know the answer to these questions, but we can look at this example and follow it where it's a good and reject it where it was sinful, the church that is. We may not follow, we may not fully understand the exact details of what took them from being a faithful church to a compromising church, but I pray together we understand some things that could cause us to go down the same road of compromise. The city of Pergamum was a city that was situated some 50 miles northeast of Smyrna. It wasn't nearly as large as either Ephesus or Smyrna, but it had something they didn't have. This city was where the Roman Empire met to make decisions. Ephesus was sort of the New York City of the Roman Empire. Smyrna was Chicago of the Roman Empire. Pergamum was sort of Washington, D.C. of the Roman Empire. It was the center cog for Roman operations. It was the seat of Satan. He literally says this in Revelation chapter 2. Talk about a smack. You're the seat of Satan. You are where the throne of Satan lives. It's pretty bad. We'll figure out what that means in just a second. Satan has often used two tactics to render the church powerless. The first tactic is, what, is that he persecutes the church. And the second is, is that he seduces the church. Most often, at least with true believers, what persecution usually does when it comes to persecution is it usually amps up the game. In other words, we as believers have traditionally responded well to persecution. You're going to persecute me? I'm going to live even a better life for Jesus. We really have. In some of the persecution, the best revivals have happened. It's not in the times of good. It's in the times of when, we're, when Christians have been pushed to understand that this is, this is not about what we make it about, but it is about Christ being our lives. And then revival happens. People start coming and knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. 
Baptisms happen on a weekly basis, not a yearly basis. Things take place when believers are persecuted. This can be clearly seen in areas where persecution has already been heavy. Do you know that persecution is pretty heavy in Liberia and India? And Liberia and India are kicking it out of the stadium as far as reaching people. We don't got to build smaller buildings in Liberia and India. We got to build bigger buildings and more of them. And yet government officials are after them weekly. Why is that? Because when Christians are pushed, they tend to respond well. But Satan's other tactic, that tactic is more subtle and often much more effective. He doesn't attack us from without, but he lulls us to sleep from within. He gets us off track and switches the real gospel with a false gospel. He gets us off track and makes things that should be important less important. He gets us to believe that holiness is an option, that true commitment to Christ is too radical and weird. You never really want to be truly committed to Christ. I mean, people might think you're a freak. He reduces us as we sometimes, he seduces us as sometimes we might think uh, sin is not at all bad. It's okay that I sin. I'm not hurting anyone. Actually, you are, but that's for another conversation. Because of our sinful nature, nature and the desires of our flesh, we take the bait and we swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. We do. You might be hearing these words come up, and, and this is not in my notes, but the Lord's leading me to say this, and so I'm going with you, Lord. You might be hearing progressive Christianity come out. It's a new word. Progressive Christianity hates the fact that Christ died for all sins in really reality. They won't say that they're against certain things that are going on in the world. They kind of tiptoe around everything. It's the one thing that's going to kill the churches. Because the old saying is true, if you don't stand on anything, you'll fall for everything. And it's happening right here. See, what we think is, is if we don't preach the truth, people will come. We won't offend. The problem is, is that the book of Romans says the gospel is offensive to those who don't believe. So if it's offensive to you what I'm saying, it's the Holy Spirit. Now I'm not saying you don't believe that that scripture passage was for those who don't save or aren't saved, but sometimes it's offensive to those who do believe because we need to be tweaked. I need to be tweaked. I sat in Myerstown on Thursday with my beautiful wife and Bishop Randy and Carla, and I was tweaked. I was tweaked. 
I'm not above being tweaked. I'm not above being corrected. I'm not above being looked at and said, don't you dare take this on yourself. I'm not above those things. And so in James 4.4, it talks about what the issue is. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means an enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, there is no, there is no middle ground. This isn't a fence that the world's on one side and the church is on the other, and we can somehow straddle the fence. But that's what we've become good at. I'll live my worldly life here and now for Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday I'll climb back over the fence, and I'll come over here and I'll put my good show on. God says, there is no fence. You're either with me over here, or you're against me over here. Pergamum didn't understand this. We're going to see that Satan tried the first war tactic only to be partially successful. So he moves on to plan B to lull Pergamum to sleep. And he wins, according to Jesus. Listen to Christ's commission in chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 12. This is all on a sermon outline. It's bright pink. You can't miss it. So if you want to fill in the blanks, you can. Um, this is Christ's commission. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words who him, from him, of him, who has this sharp, double-edged sword. As been in the pattern of the last three church, two churches, um, Jesus gives his commission to the elder of the messenger of the church. If you remember this word translated as angel, it's again very literal um, in its translation. It simply means messenger or special elder or pastor. As John shares the word of Jesus, first for the Pergamum church and then to us today, he highlights one trait of Christ that he saw in his vision. The words of him who has the two-edged sword. Here's what John highlights. The specific trait of Jesus, because the church at Pergamum had for a while now been powerless to combat the devil's tactics. In other words, the church of Pergamum was being so seduced, so put to sleep. If you would, well, what I named this when I was studying this was the carbon monoxide Satan attack. You know how carbon monoxide works? The room fills up, doesn't look like anything's there, doesn't smell like anything's there, and all of a sudden people start to die. This is what Satan does. He comes in and he, he doesn't smell different. He doesn't look different. But all of a sudden, people start to get lulled by his seducing ways. And the church of Pergamum was no different. And so Jesus starts off with this weird picture of him. A double-edged sword that, 
And, and we'll get to what the reference is here in just a second. But John highlights Christ's word as the weapons to overtake the enemy. They needed to be reminded that to stand against the attacks of the devil, one must be armed with the sword, which is the word of God. And so what ended up happening was this took second place in Pergamum. And somehow, all the scripture passages that challenge us today, that, that lead to very uncomfortable conversations, were watered down. And Jesus says, I come in like a sword, double-edged sword, man, I cut. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God, it'll be on the screen as well, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Why do we set this aside? Here's why, because it's easy... It's easier if I don't put this in my heart. Because now I can claim ignorance. Right? It's the guy who gets pulled over for speeding. I haven't seen a speed limit sign in 30 miles. Does the cop have a whole lot of... Well, it depends on the cop. What I hear on cop shows, and I'm not saying they're true life, but they mostly say ignorance doesn't get you out of the problem. It's much easier to judge myself on my own standards than on what he says. Right? I'm a pretty good guy. This is me speaking to myself. I... I haven't killed anyone yet. Notice yet. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to kill anyone. But I haven't killed anyone. Matthew 5, Jesus says, the way you speak about people and think about people, you can kill people. Crud. I killed some people. See, it's easy for me to say, I haven't killed anyone. Then, woo, then Jesus ups the ante. So it's easy for me to look at myself and say, I'm doing pretty, pretty good, man. I am a holy guy. If you even look at someone with an attitude in your heart, The word of God is alive. People say to me sometimes, don't you, how do you make the word of God come alive? I don't got to. It's alive as it gets. God makes it alive. This church was trying to do battle with a watered down gospel and even a false word. Their weapon was dull and unless against the attacks and, and useless against the attacks of the evil one. Rather than standing and fighting, they chose to surrender and give in because they had no way of moving forward because they lost their eyes off of this. 
If we could just get back to doing what we did in the 80s. That's not this. I'm not saying that you didn't do this in the 80s, but what I'm saying is we focus on if we could just get back to doing it this way, I know it would change our outlook, but that's not here. And that's what Pergamum got stuck in. We know the solution. We'll just do it. You know? Tired of fighting. We'll just, we'll, we'll just let it happen. Then Christ's com- commend- commendation, excuse me, commendation. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus declares, I know your works. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus declares, I know your affliction and your poverty. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus declares, I know where you live. The city was the center of satanic activity for Asia. Spiritual warfare was at an all-time high. So Jesus is not literally saying that the throne of Satan sits there and Satan sits there himself. Because Satan is at move inside of the sovereignty of God. Remember that. Satan cannot move if God says he cannot move. And so it's in the sovereignty of God, and he's on the move, and it appears that he is like rested in Pergamum. And that's what he's saying in this letter to the church. It seems like Satan activity is higher here than anywhere else. It's almost as if he's put his throne right in the center of your town, and he's sitting there just controlling every aspect of your town. Even in all the church was faithful in two areas. They were faithful in the fact that they held fast to Christ's name. They were faithful to uphold the name of Christ. They did not give to declare that Caesar is Lord. Remember what I talked about last week? This is just down the road from them. Smyrna and Pergamum are like brothers and sisters right down the road. You remember what I said last week? I said that the businesses in that day and age, there were times when the businesses would have to say, we follow Caesar and no one else. And you say, well, why did they have to say it? Well, they had a choice. They did have a choice. They could not say it and lose their entire business and be shut down by the government. And so when he comes to Smyrna and he says, there's poverty in your church, he's not saying that they're poor people, that they don't work, that they just sit on their, their, their backsides and they don't do anything. No, what he's really saying is, is that the, the reason Smyrna was a poor church was because those guys didn't fall for what the government said. So when Uncle Sam came knocking and said, you either bow down to Caesar or you're going to lose your job, well, I guess I'm going to go without some things. 
And at that moment in time, I looked at all of you, and and I looked at myself in my own heart, and I said, what if Washington, D.C. did that today? You bow down to this God, or you're out of a job. I can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for me. But apparently there were enough in Smyrna that they got, they got congratulated because they didn't give in to Caesar's demands or Caesar's servants' demands. But they also held fast, held fast their faith in Christ. It wasn't the false gods they looked for to for salvation. They came to Christ on his terms by grace through faith. They continued even in the worst of times. Even when Antipathus was martyred because of the, his faithfulness, they continued to uphold the name of Christ. That's the good news. So in other words, they watched one of their brothers, literally. It would be like, um, I'm not going to pick on anybody here, but it would be, be like um, me um, I'll just pick on myself. I'm taken out here by the, by the authorities of Muhlenberg Township on the front porch and made a spectacle of. You want to believe in Jesus Christ, that's fine. Well, no, it's not fine because you're about to lose your life and you all watch it. You get to see it go down. And the next week, we don't lose people. No, we actually gain people. Because people were faithful even in the midst of the conflict. That's what's going on in Pergamum. They've all watched this man die. And instead of the church being empty the next week, it was full again. And so Jesus commends them on it, and that's the good news. But then comes Christ's condemnation. This is the bad news. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of, the Baal, of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites so sin, to sin so that they are full food sacrifice to idols, so that they ate food sacrifice to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nic- Nic- Nicolaitans. Unfortunately, with this church suffering, it had not perfected, but it had caused it to give in. It had caused it to compromise. Oh, they can still consider themselves Christians, and they had allowed compromise to remain within the church while the compromise was in some respect doctrinal. It was mainly in holiness. The church upheld the name of Christ and faith in Christ, but compromised its commitment to Christ. The church told the church, the church told the truth with its lips, but it lied with its lifestyle. So here's two examples of how it did it. Balaam. The example of Balaam. Now, you might remember it, but I'm going to give you the, the, the Cliff Notes version of it. So Balaam was a spiritualist or a medium. King Balak of Moab had heard that the Israelites were coming so not to be defeated like the others. He hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. 
Balaam, being an agent of Satan, recognized the power of God and claimed that he would only do what God would allow for him to do. For no amount of money would he do anything contrary to God's will. For three times, Balaam was to curse the Israelites, and three times God caused him to bless them instead of that. But the third time, Balaam even prophesied to Balak that Israel would defeat the Moabites. King Balak was very angry. Before Balaam left, he told the king how to defeat the Israelites. He said the Israelites could be seduced into pagan worship and into pagan sexual immorality. And when this happens, God would curse them. Let's look at Numbers 31.16. Here's what it says. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the innocent, in its incident of Peror. Peror. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Here's what you need to know. Likely, there were those in the first century church who, like Balaam, told the Roman government how to beat the Christians. Like Balaam, who wanted to be to the praise of man, these leaders preached God's word sometimes, and the other times they were desperately trying to just fit in. They caused the Christians to sin. They wanted the Christians to like them. These were deceivers within the church, like Balaam, who did some things right, but really loved money and power more. That was being caused in the church. By the way, because of Balaam's actions, 24,000 people died. because a plague hit the city. Yeah, the compromise doesn't just affect the person who's compromising, but there's a lot of damage later. The point is, just like the Israel had compromised and, and married foreign women and worshiped foreign gods and so on and so forth, so too the church was worshiping idols and foreign gods instead of the true God. By the way of compromise, they had fallen into idolatry. See, that's what happens. You give a little, and before you know it, you've given a foot. And then a hand, and then an arm, and then a head. And so the warning here of the church of Pergamum is a warning for us. Be careful. I mentioned earlier progressive Christianity. Let me tell you the problem with progressive Christianity. We all got to be friends. Well, what's that mean? It means if you have a differing opinion than me, I, I should change my opinion because you have the differing opinion so that we can be friends. Even at the cost of this. 
friends, Pergamum fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. But then he goes on and he lists another example of the Nickelodeon, Nickel, yeah, Nickelodeons, Nickelations. Yeah, Nick at night, let's go. Um, these guys were those who also, some respects, looked to be a part of the leadership, part of a leader. They upheld the name of Christ but wanted to straddle the fence. You remember that fence? They wanted a little Christianity and a little of the world. They taught that as a Christian, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to because after all, God will forgive you. How many times have I heard that? If I had a quarter for every time, money would not be an issue. God's going to forgive me anyway, pastor, so I can go out and do whatever I want to do. Yep. Nicolaitans. It's a bad teaching. They said it was your sin that flesh, your, your sin that, it was, they said that it was your flesh that sinned, therefore your spirit was safe. Literally what they were teaching in the church was, it's okay when you sin because that's your flesh sinning, but your spirit didn't sin. Jesus says something different in the word of God. They watered down God's requirement in Christian perseverance and sanctification. These would be those today who teach that all a person needs to do is, is just pray. Just come and bow your head and say a few short words and get up and live as, as, ever, as ever you feel you want to live. And you'll be Okay. And yet Christ challenges us in the Gospel of Luke. He says these very words, you want to be a disciple of mine? Pick up your cross and follow me. That doesn't seem like just go do whatever you want to do. You want to be a disciple of mine? Deny yourself. Deny yourself the right to get back at people. Deny yourself the right to hold that grudge. Nicolaitans would say, it's okay, just hold it. Because that's your flesh holding on to the grudge, not your spirit. It's okay, you said that prayer when you were two or ten or twelve. You're fine. See, the reality is that people are prone to wander away from God, and they, they need the truth repeated to help them stay faithful to God. They need this word that we throw around, discipleship. It's why we are putting high emphasis on it at church. It's not because I, I, I just want people to come. That is some of it, but more of it is is that Look, if your life isn't being changed by the interaction you're having with him, there's a problem. And it isn't with him. 
And you're real close to compromising if you're not growing. Period. Christ's confirmation or confrontation is in verse 16. Here's what it says. Repent, therefore. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Compromise, again, had invaded the church. Jesus gave this church two options. Here's what they were. Here's what, here's, if you become a compromising church, if we become a compromising church, here's what our two options will be. There will be the, the option to repent, and remember what repent is. Repent is not saying, I'm sorry, and then going and doing the very thing. You know, I didn't repent when I was a kid when I said to my parents, and, and I thought I did because I, I had a misunderstanding of what repentance was. And so I would go to my parents and say, sorry for kicking my sister. And they would say, oh, it's okay. Thank you for repenting. And then as soon as they turned their heads, bam, he kicked me again. And then they would say, how sorry really were you? Because we think repentance is saying, I'm sorry, and then it goes all the way. No, what repentance is, is literally saying, if I'm compromising and I'm repentant of my compromising, I'm going to walk towards Christ. I'm not going to continue to compromise. Then I didn't repent. I said I was sorry, and I lied. Because I really wasn't. Because I continued to compromise. And so Pergamum had this choice. They could continue down the road of, per- of that, or they could repent, or they could suffer the consequences. And what's that consequence? Doing war with Christ. I don't know anybody in this room. I know some pretty tough guys. But I don't know anyone that wants to take on Christ when he's swinging a sword. And that's what he's saying to this church. You can repent and turn your ways or you can fight me. You can fight me. Last is Christ's challenge. Whatever, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give you some, some hidden manna. I will also give you that person, uh, give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, here's what we've learned so far. To those who have been faithful, they can eat from the tree of life. They've been given the crown of life. They are protected, last week we learned, from the second death. All these victories rest on Christ, not the churches or the pastors or those churches' abilities, friends. This isn't because you had abilities that you're going to get this white stone with your new name written on it. This isn't because you got it all right that you're going to get the hidden manna. No, this is because Christ in his love for you, showing you grace, is going to give you these things at the end of time if you remain faithful. It's not on your power, it's on his. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. 
I don't deserve some white stone with my new name written on it. I don't deserve hidden manna. I don't deserve to not experience a second death because inside of me lives sin and inside of you lives sin. But it's because of his grace. And the gift of hidden manna that God had promised is like the manna that he provided for the Israelites. You remember from our Bible reading in Exodus, the manna from heaven. Rather than eating this manna, God's people were tricked by Balaam into eating meat sacrificed to idols. That's how it goes back to the Balaam example. God says he has hidden manna. As the church, we must avoid the deadly error, the error of substituting false manna for the true manna. The hidden manna is basically an eternal provision in our Lord Jesus Christ. The manna that came down from heaven is a foreshadowing of that true manna. Do you remember the story when they're being fed the manna? How much manna did they have left over at the end of the day, every day? None. They had enough to feed their souls, feed their hearts, feed their bellies, and that was it. How much grace does Jesus give you every day of your life? Enough to get through that day, and the next day they're new. He doesn't give you extra so you can hold on to it. He gives you just the right amount. Then the Lord said to Moses in Exodus, Behold, I'm about to sin or rain bread from heaven for you, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then the gift of the white stone. Let me just kind of um, paraphrase this one. The gift of the white stone is a a non-conclusion. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Listen, I read... 10 commentaries, and in all 10 commentaries, it said there's 10 different opinions of what the white stone is. So here's what I can tell you. You're not getting a black stone, and that's a good thing. Black stone represents sin in the Old Testament. You're getting a new stone with a new name written on it if you remain faithful to the end. You might have heard 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The gifts of manna and a new name are given to those who conquer. Not compromise. Look, Christ knows our situation every bit as well as he knew the church of Pergamum. He knows the things we are doing right, and he knows the things that we are doing not so right. Here's what I can tell you about Christ. He isn't happy, apparently, and never satisfied with a blemished church, but is seeking a pure church, a bride who is glowing and holy. We should never be satisfied either. He will show us mercy and patience and grace, if we seek to be obedient to his word as a church. Christ will also grant us repentance when we mess up. True repentance, not just sorry and then go back to doing what we once did before. The goal of this sermon of Christ is to a church is not just to make Christ number one in your life, but to make Christ the only one who matters 
in your life. There's a difference. You can make him number one, and he's not the only one that matters. There's always people fighting for number one. Or you can make him the only one who matters and compromise goes far, far away. It's your choice. Something that I need to learn is the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but what can't you do? You can't make them drink. I can lead you to the promised land. I can lead you to making Christ everything that matters, and that's it. But I can't make you do it. You have to make that choice. Just like I have to make that choice. I pray that as the world turns, we will stand more and more on the God's word. I pray that the word of God doesn't become less important, it becomes more important. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, you are a wonderful God. You are one who reminds us over and over again of our goods, the good things we do. And Lord, yes, sometimes you remind us of the things that we do that don't please you. But you never do those, remind us of those things that don't please you in hopes that it will break us. No, you do that in hopes that, like the wayward son, we would come home to you, to a Father who loves you, loves us, in spite of us. And Lord, if there's a prayer that I have for the Faith Church family today, whether online or here with us this morning, and whoever they are, that they would never, that they would not strive to make you number one but they would strive to make you the only one that matters. It's tough to do, but it's what keeps us away from compromise and going down the street of the Church of Pergamum. Help us, Lord. Help us to stay strong. Help us to lean on your word when we get weak. Help us to honor you in all we do think and say. For Lord, it's in your name we pray this all. Amen. The closing song today is, You Are My All in All. That's the heart's desire of the Church of Pergamum. Well, should have been the heart's desire of the Church of Pergamum. You are my all in all. Would you sing it with us this morning? Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 